Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Error monitoring is provided by Rollbar. Learn more at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Welcome to Request for Commits, a podcast that explores different perspectives in open source sustainability. On this show, we talk to people about the human side of code. We cover everything from community and governance to businesses and licensing. If you've ever wondered how open source projects get started, survive, die, or flourish, then you're going to love this show. I'm Nadia Ekbal. And I'm Michael Rogers. On today's show, Michael and I talk with Henry Zhu. Henry is the maintainer of Babel, a JavaScript compiler. He currently works at Adobe as a developer on Behance. Our focus with Henry was on the past, present, and future of Babel. We talked about how he became an accidental maintainer of Babel, why he thinks maintainers aren't special, and his experience with burnout. We also talked about how Henry thinks about paid open source work, how he talked to his employer about working on open source, and how Babel's brand helped build their community. So Henry, you said that you've become an, an accidental maintainer of Babel. How did you start contributing to Babel and then eventually become a maintainer? So I started contributing to Babel through another project that I was maintaining. Um, it was called uh, JSDS. Um, it's a JavaScript linter. And through that project, I learned about uh, what are called ASTs, abstract syntax trees. And I realized by working on a tool that dealt with um, how code is structured and having to figure out how to create errors and fix them, I realized that Babel was like really similar to how that worked. Um, I eventually found that Sebastian, who was the creator of Babel, he uh, wasn't able to maintain the Babel core and the some other side projects. So I got involved in the smaller project called Babel ESLint, which just is a compatibility layer between Babel and ESLint. Um, and then slowly through that, I made more bug fixes, started maintaining that. Um, and yeah, slowly just, he kind of, you know, stepped down and then I kind of felt like, oh, wow, I'm like one of the few people uh, maintaining this project. And I feel like I only realized that like, like months into doing it, because I uh, at the time I felt like he was going to come back at any point. So it was like, oh, I'm just kind of like the interim maintainer. There are other maintainers now, though, right? So did they come on later or were they around at the time? Right. Um, there were, so when Babel 6 got released, um, a bunch of us started helping out, uh, like Logan. Um, but uh, some people, they, they, they come and go. Like um, Amjad was a big part of uh, Babel uh, while he was at Facebook, but he, he left his to a startup. Um, and then, yeah, right now we have, um, I'd say like, I guess three core maintainers. So we have uh, Logan Smith and Daniel Chender and everyone else is, are just uh, other collaborators that we've picked up over time. Yeah, I've, I've actually heard from like a couple people. Um, they think that Babel and Webpack are maintained by Facebook because it's, <laughs> it's associated with React. And, I, and I'm constantly saying, no, 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 they have nothing to do with that. So, yeah. I mean, like the project really is like, you know, held together by independent contributors and not by some company, right? Right. I, that happens all the time. I, um, 
So I got invited to a, a Google conference called Blink On, um, and uh, Sean was also there at Webpack. And for all the people I talked to, I was like, oh yeah, I work on Babel. And then like at least 10 people, they're like, oh, do you work at Facebook? I was like, no, I've never worked at Facebook. So yeah, I think in their minds, because the way people use Babel is through React, everyone just thinks that uh, it is a Facebook project. But um, yeah, it's totally, yeah not under any company and not even under the, uh, where I work either. So can you talk a little bit about, um, just cause I think that was your first like maintainer experience, right. Um, going from a contributor to a maintainer and just like how that felt in terms of any imposter syndrome you're feeling about it or any fear of you know, having to manage a very large and complex project. Right. Um, well actually it is technically it's the second project that I maintained cause I, I did, end up being on the core team of JSCS. So I did help maintain that. Um, but I guess in that role, I did feel like I was more of a contributor, even though I was helping do releases and stuff. Um, but yeah, now it's kind of feeling like I'm the one leading it. So yeah, there definitely is a lot of uh, um, imposter syndrome in that. I always remember like how I started, not knowing anything about the project, like I found out about it before or after it was called six to five. I didn't even know what ES6 was, all that stuff. So it was really interesting when I got involved, I started joining our Slack room where people ask questions and I wouldn't know the answer to any of these things, but I guess I cared enough to um, look it up or figure it out for people. But every time I would answer, I'd say like, oh, I don't actually know what I'm doing either, but here's what I think. But yeah, slowly you just do more and more. And then you look back, you're like, oh, I guess I did learn some things. It's kind of a, <laughs> I'm kind of wondering, like, why did you care so much for a project that you didn't really know that much about? Um, I guess that's a good question. Uh, when I first started, I didn't actually even, yeah, I didn't even use it. I just thought it was so cool that uh, there was a project that could, like, transform code. And it's ironic because... So I didn't major in computer science and I was interested in coding because of other things like visualization and statistics because I majored in um, industrial engineering, which is more about that kind of stuff. But then I found like D3 and uh, that kind of uh, library. Um, and then I found that um, I was like, no, I don't want to learn any like low level tools and like compilers are like too complicated. But then somehow uh, I was like, oh, later I was like, oh, I am working on a compiler. But it's only now where I'm like understanding like what that is through the experience of working on this project. The, partially the reason why it was interesting was because I was learning JavaScript um, just on my own at the time. And I, I didn't even know that there was all this new syntax. And I think most of us are really excited by the idea of that. And at the same time, in the linting project, a big focus we were trying to figure out was how to do auto fixing that a lot of linters, all they do is just tell you what's wrong with your code. But it would be so much better if you didn't have to manually you know, add white space or change some syntax if the tool could do it for you. So this is before auto-fixing was a thing in ESLint or even recently Prettier. Um, what happened was I was contributing to Angular and I manually fixed all their styling bugs. Um, you know, like tens of thousands of lines through like find and replace. And I was like, I wish there was a better way to do this automatically. And when I realized that like doing the auto fixing was pretty similar to how Valve was doing compiling, it got me really interested in it. 
Then do you think that like coming at it from that perspective uh, of I'm writing an auto fixer, not I'm going to work on a compiler was part of what allowed you to get into it? Like it sounded like you were a little bit scared off of the idea of working on a quote unquote compiler and it might have helped that you didn't even consider it a compiler at the time. Yeah, I, I totally think that's why I'm doing this today, that because it was accidental, I I was able to, I guess, face not really like I didn't even know what I was doing. And then I felt like if I did, I would have that fear and I wouldn't have done it in the first place. So kind of being ignorant of what everything was uh, helped out a lot, actually. <laughs> What's been um, surprising about being a maintainer for this project? Um, one thing that I can think of right now is just like how unimportant the code is uh, being a maintainer that like in the end, like what are we actually doing? Are we, we're like helping other developers and it's so important to have, you know, communication with people and just um, care about both the users, the contributors, potential contributors. I, and then like recently I've been talking with a lot of different teams or going to, you know, conferences and meetups and I, I'm seeing the, the benefits of having a more structured, you know, way of doing things, I guess. It, it's weird that in open source, we're just, a bunch of volunteers so then everything happens organically which is really good because you know not everyone has time um, but then once a project gets to a certain point you kind of don't really know where you're going you're kind of just like reaching in the dark um, so I'm trying to see the benefits of just yeah having a plan <laughs> yeah um, you talked a lot about how the the code doesn't matter there and a lot of what you're doing is is just making it easier to use or to contribute to um, as a project gets like, you know, more grown up or it, it has more users, there's a natural tendency for it to just become harder to contribute to. Like the code gets right. bigger, it's more complicated. Um, do you find that, you know, a lot of what you're doing is just keeping it easy to contribute to as well as, you know, reducing the complexity? Um, yeah, I feel like, I mean, a big part of this is just because I wasn't the one that wrote this code and most of us, you know, joined after the code base was kind of established. So most of us are concerned about, you know, the readability and maintainability. And the reason why I care about it so much is because I don't really understand it myself. Um, so I was thinking of like, you know, how can we make it easier to set up, um, you know, having documentation, asking other people to think about documentation. I, I feel like a lot of my, what I want to do is just, give people more of an awareness of, you know, what does it mean to be a maintainer? And like, I think a lot of this is just like how you approach um, the project and your attitude towards the project that I think as a user, you know, you're just talking about, you know, does it work? And as a contributor, you're just finding some random issue to fix. But as a maintainer, you're thinking about the overall project and a lot, I guess a lot of things that people wouldn't even think to consider. It's interesting that um, I think for some projects, like it becomes a, a problem when the original authors aren't present anymore. They're not involved because you're trying to sort of like backtrack and figure everything out. But it, it seems like it can actually be an advantage in terms of you have to take the same mindset as people who are coming to the project cold. Um, and you have to put more emphasis on documentation and making sure things are easily understandable. I think it just like really speaks to the value of uh, 
a certain skill set for maintainers in particular that might be different from what the original authors needed or different from what a contributor needed. It's It seems like it's just a totally different skill set. Um, and for projects like yours and for um, like Webpack, just seeing that um, some of those projects have founded a growing community, not through writing just the writing of code, but through all these other functions. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. Um, we put a really big emphasis on getting people to contribute, but I feel like we don't really talk about like, um, yeah, what does that like involve? And uh, we're, we're, we're so quick to, you know, saying that open source is really good and that um, you're going to get a lot of benefit from it. But then I always thought like everyone should be, you know, an open source contributor or maintainer. And I think everyone can do it. But yeah, in the end, maybe it's um, it's not what people want. Um, like looking through issues and all these things that seem like busy work or it's just it turns people off. But yeah, maybe we can figure out a way to make that more enjoyable. <laughs> There's always a couple people that love it, and, and I, like I love you. it when those people show up. No, I'm not one of those people. No, I mean Henry, definitely not you. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you you uh, you had a talk recently at JSConf EU, um, mm -hmm. and one of the key points was uh, maintainers aren't special, uh, and I, I wanted you to get a little bit more into that and what you mean by that, because uh, I think that that's a, a really interesting point. Um, yeah, I guess. Part of it was just that I was saying that maintainers aren't special from a technical point of view. Um, I had the same feeling when I um, wanted to get into open source. I just because I just didn't know, you know, anything about it. So then you just assume that the maintainers are like, you know, code geniuses, or they they created the project. But then now being a maintainer, <laughs> looking back, you're like, oh, I was just the same person as everyone else when I started. That I didn't know anything. But I guess when you do become a maintainer, it's not really yeah technical. It's all, um, I guess it's just to say to encourage people that if you want to contribute to open source or be a maintainer, I don't think there's anything stopping you if you, you know, aren't experienced in open source or aren't experienced in that language or the, the code base. I feel like if you use that project at work or in your side projects, then you already have enough context into how it works. And as long as you're, you know, willing to um, help out with that project, that's all you really need. Um, I guess um, one thing was that when I started, I didn't really have like a mentor or a lot of people like that I could talk to that would help me get started. I think recently we a lot of projects have been um, trying to focus on that with like meetings and hangout notes and uh, maybe talking with people one-on-one. -on -one. But before, when I started, it was just kind of like looking at issues and finding something and kind of figuring everything out on my own. So there's no like guided experience for that. Yeah, you're sort of you're sort of demystifying the maintainer role, right? Right. <laughs> and it, I feel like it's easy to do just because I know like I've been there. So and I think a lot of maintainers would say the same thing. I wonder how we can make that kind of stuff clear, because there's also like different kinds of maintainers right and and the yeah. way that you had come into it was <laughs> barely knowing anything about the project at all um and and doing a role that other people weren't doing and there's other projects where the maintainer is sort of like the one person who's still primarily writing code and managing issues and everything but i feel like there there must be so many other projects like Babel that would have benefited from a maintainer like you that does that that type of a role 
Right. Yeah, there are so many different roles. I think another thing is just like the definition of maintainer isn't very, it's kind of vague. And we could do a better job of like explaining like what is, what are all these roles? It's weird that it's kind of like a startup to me. It's like, you know, you're kind of like the CEO of this company that doesn't make any money, but you have to do like marketing and social media and, you know, writing a release and um, dealing with like, regressions, looking through triage issues and talking with other projects, other companies, your developers, like all these things aren't even writing the code at all. And then also like psychologically, like how can you like manage all this stuff and how do you prioritize um, what's important? Because I think one problem is because there's so many things that you could be doing and not enough people, you get overwhelmed with what you could be doing and every single thing that pops up becomes the priority when uh, you have to learn to I guess not really ignore but like know that you have to focus on um, the direction of the project yeah it's always it's always hard to transition from you know you start out as an individual contributor and then you become more of a not just maintainer but also like a leader and you don't have infinite time, so you have to start to focus. And inevitably, you start focusing less on the things that you started doing and, and more on the things that, you know, nobody else can do. Um, and it's hard to identify what those are, right? Right. That's like a skill, if I want to call it a skill, that I'm trying to figure out now. <laughs> do, do you think that um, projects do a good enough job of encouraging people with all these different skill sets to show up? I mean, do they like, even like, know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. They know they need this. Yeah, I feel like that's definitely the first step. Um, I think I mentioned this in my talk, but um, my talk was about awareness that we're trying to get people to contribute when they don't even know what to contribute to. Um, I think it's all in our head, and this, this is why documentation is so important. And I don't really have a good way of doing that, like figuring out all the different things. And I think if you just, you know, sat in a room and tried to figure out all the things that you could do, it's just, you wouldn't really be able to come up with anything. I think it's more like, I feel like I do a lot of things on the fly where like, if I see there's a need, then, you know, we should write something or we should make an issue. Um, I guess it's, that can be stressful that you know, everything seems to be responsive rather than proactive. But yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe we just need to get more people thinking about it. And I wanted to understand, I think at the beginning of the talk, you had said something like the purpose of this isn't to get you to contribute or to convince you to contribute to open source. Why did you say that? Um, well, I guess one thing was just that I, I felt like a lot of people already gave that kind of talk. And maybe I felt like that's in some sense pushing too far. Like maybe people aren't even ready to the point where they want to do that. So just simply telling my story might be enough for people to be interested enough. And then, you know, we could show them those other talks about more practical steps on what that means. Um, I think it's more like, in some sense, just empathy for like what maintainers do. Um, that was my goal. When you think about like the reasoning behind people contributing to open source, do you mean a reason to get involved at all or a reason to sort of increase your involvement. Like I meet people often who, right. you know, like once a week we'll probably send a pull request to something and it's just part of their job. And they, and when you say like, do you do open source? They're like, no, I don't. <laughs> like, <I'm> not, <laughs> they don't, they don't consider that open source. Right. 
Yeah, yeah, I think more the latter that um, how do we get consistent contributors? Like a lot of people can make, you know, that docs change or fix a typo. And you look at the contributor graph and like, you, you know, you have a thousand contributors on your project, but most of them only made one commit. So, you know, why is it that some people stay? Why do people um, end up investing in a certain project or care about open source in general? Um, trying to figure that out, yeah. This episode is brought to you by Linode. Linode is our cloud server of choice and everything we do here at Changelog is hosted on Linode servers. Pick a plan, pick a distro and pick a location and in seconds, deploy your virtual server, draw worthy hardware, SSD cloud storage, 40 gigabit network, Intel E5 processors, simple easy control panel, 99.9% .9 uptime guaranteed, 24-7 customer support, nine data centers, three regions, anywhere in the world they've got you covered. Head to linode.com changelog and get $20 in hosting credit. Henry, you're really, really active in Babel. You're, you're doing a lot there. And and like you mentioned, it's not even your full-time job. You have another job. Um, is there anything that you do to kind of keep healthy and avoid burnout? Um, so this was, looking back, I think this is a pretty big problem. I, uh, even before I started working at, uh, so I work at Behance, which is part of Adobe. I guess, oh, I'll go into more history. So when I was involved in JSCS, I, uh, I was working at a different company in Georgia and I just got more involved. I would go home right after work and I would just work on that project. And eventually, uh, when I became a maintainer, um, I got an email from one of my uh, coworkers and they, they're like, hey, you should come here to work at Enhance because you've been doing really good work. And we, we already basically know that you know, you're qualified through your work, open source work. Um, and because of that, I was like, wow, this is really cool. I was so excited about working at a company where they cared about open source and that was what I was interested in. And so when I went here, I just, yeah, every day I just go home and then do open source. Um, and then eventually, yeah, like I, I felt the pressure of, you know, wanting to, I guess, satisfy other people's needs or, you know, staying late when, you know, you make a release and there's a regression and then, you're like staying up till like 12 trying to fix the bug or people complaining and just kind of forgetting um, my own health and mental health as well. Um, and that, that's actually when I felt like, you know, what, what do I really want to do? And um, I was reaching out to my boss about like being able to work on it at work. Um, and when that happened, I was really excited. And it was weird that I kind of, the whole point of that was so that I wouldn't have to do it at home but then even in the first you know few weeks or months i was working at home and and at work and then i was like wait what am i what am i doing um i don't know i guess 
I felt like for me, it kind of just naturally happened where I was like, why am I working on open source? And even though it's really fun, but that's not, you know, obviously that's not what defines me and that's not who I am. And, you know, there are a lot of other things that, you know, we have to be responsible for, including our health. Um, and when I was you know, able to just realize that it, it became so much easier to just, yeah, make that not a priority anymore. Um, I don't know, I guess it's hard to say because I feel like it kind of happened recently where I was just like, I didn't ever feel like I was going to get burnt out because, I don't know, I, I, I learned to, yeah, it's like how do you separate yourself from your work um, that I think we invest so much time into something, right? It doesn't even have to be open source, like your regular work or different hobbies and things like that, and you, you become kind of obsessed about it. But yeah, I think either your body tells you or someone else will tell you that you'll recognize like, yeah, that's not, that's not everything. So, I mean, that's a really big component of it. This, this like feeling of responsibility that you have, like, um, that is essentially infinite, like an infinite amount of work that you're responsible for to other people. Um, do you think that you, you sort of unburdened yourself with that feeling of responsibility or did you just say you prioritized your own mental health over that feeling? Uh, let's see. So I think, I don't know, it's kind of both in the end, like, because we don't have that many people, there is definitely that responsibility in the sense that no one else is really working on it. So you kind of felt like if you're not doing it, then who will? But I think we have to realize that maybe, you know, maybe that's just because people aren't aware of that. And I think that's what uh, Sebastian was trying to struggling with as well, that, you know, he was able to step down from the project and then people took up the project and that happened to be me. And so I can, it's, you kind of have to know that you're still responsible, but somehow not worry about the project or the state of the project if you're gone. I mean, it's like, why, why do people not take vacations and like um, take breaks? I feel like people don't say like, oh, I'm, I'm like going away or it's like we make a big deal about like, oh, I'm not working on open source when it should be normal. Like, you know, you're, I, I'm not doing it on the weekends anymore or taking a vacation. But because there's so few people, you have to like say like, oh, I'm not going to work on the project for like today. <laughs> I think there's something I hear about, I'm just sort of musing out loud, but um, I hear about people that do any kind of creative work is you have this balance between, you have to find the balance between being really, really passionate about the creative work that you do and and caring about it and like loving it, but then also knowing at some point that it doesn't really matter, right? Like it, there's there's some sort of separation between like, this is not my core identity or self, even though I can feel like very invested in it. And it's like a really weird balance to find, like not being so into it that you like, you know, you're hinging your happiness on it, but not being so removed from it that you just don't care about anything. And it's like knowing both those things. And you said to me before that uh, this idea that like everything is, is fake or it just doesn't really matter. Is that, is that sort of what you were getting to? Um, I guess that everything is fake was just, that was more about the whole like maintainers aren't, they don't have to be super technical or start very technical that when, when people ask questions and they answer um, it's not like I already know the answer in my head that somehow like I have all the information about Babel in my head and JavaScript. Um, even today, someone made an issue and I responded like <laughs> I responded like immediately, and he's like, "Oh, I, I guess you like memorized the ES6 spec." And I was like, 
No, not really. <laughs> I just, you know, learned about how the code works and I tested it in Chrome and same bug, so it's not a bug. Like, it wasn't like I already knew it. I, I had to look it up too. It, it's, it's really interesting when people, they, you know, they ask, like, how does this work or why is there this error? And, uh, you know, it's like the information is in the readme. But, um, and it's okay for me to like tell them that, but pointing them to docs and stuff, but maybe, you know, it's not accessible enough for them to, to find it or to read through it. Just don't have enough context. Yeah. I routinely tell people like, I have to look up the documentation for APIs that I wrote. Like I forget <laughs> them. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Can you just for context to back up a little bit, um, talk about how you split your work at Behance on work on Babel and then work on your full-time job and because you contribute to Babel as part of your job, right? Yeah. And like, how did you get that set up to happen? Um, talked about it a little bit, basically I kind of just one day I was like, I want to get a meeting with my boss and I, um, just some coworkers about open source and wanted to figure out what we're going to do with the project. Uh, maybe I was like, Oh, I should like figure out how to do it full time. And so I asked them about doing it full time and, they were totally okay with me working on it part of the time as kind of like an experiment to see what would happen. Um, I think at the time it was just kind of unknown and, you know, it's not very common for people to be able to work on it at work right now. So it was more of like, let's see what happens in terms of, are we getting benefit from me doing this as uh, for the company? And also if I finally do work on it at work as part of my job, do I even like it? Because it does seem like some people might start working at work and then realize that that's not what they want to do because uh, maybe they feel more stressed out or they end up liking just you know regular work more. Uh, for me, I guess recently we've, it, and it was really hard in the beginning because what happened was I would have a project to do for, for Babel and then I would also have work. Um, and then it's really hard to do like a 50-50 split where maybe it's like half the day I work on Babel and the other half the day I work on regular work. And it ended up being more like, okay, for the whole week I would work on mostly Babel stuff and then not really do that much work. And then, you know, when we have like a deadline or we really, you know, need something done, then I'd be working on that instead of Babel. And that would be like a lot less of open source work. Um, and I think that's just hard to do, you know, just at any company, right? But I think recently, you know, trying to figure out a better balance of like how to split that work um, so that maybe I can work on more things that are less blocking for other people, but are still tasks that we need to do. Um, that way, I'm not, if I am working on open source, it's not like preventing someone else from doing something. Um, but yeah, that's still a work in progress and we're still figuring out exactly how that aligns. I think that's a, you, you touched on something interesting there where it's a really different kind of work to work on a product and with a team. And sometimes that mental health balance like includes a lot of that work. Um, I know like Doug Wilson who maintains Express, like he does that only in his own time and specifically does not want a job doing it because he likes working on a product with a team for his work. And then he gets something very different out of, you know, maintaining this <laughs> incredibly uh, well depended on library. Um, does he work on, does, does the company he works at use Express? 
No, no, okay. it, it couldn't. It couldn't be further away. I don't even know okay. if they use Node. <laughs> like okay. it's it's literally like that far away from what he's doing at at night. And I think that he he really feels like these are just like separate things that he's doing, and and he mm. gets a very different things out of both of them. Yeah, I guess that's the same with Sakura, um, uh, Tobias of Webpack, where when he like well now he's doing it full time, but before he was doing I think he was doing like C sharp or something at work and then in his free time he'd be doing webpack which is like totally unrelated and then at work here you know we actually use valve so we work together to figure out like okay can i work on something that will benefit our company and then the project in general so that we both benefit and it's not like i think we're, we're trying to we don't want to make it like a company thing where it's like oh you know kind of like how like google has certain projects and you think of them as google but Babel isn't like Adobe Babel or anything like that. It's so striking to me that like everyone has a different arrangement that works for them. And there's just, and it, it really comes down to personality, right? Like maybe like for Dyke, he just like finds a different kind of pleasure in his open source work and he just really doesn't want to associate it with work. And for other people, it makes sense to have it there. It's yeah, there's like no formula. Yeah. I'm wondering about, um, so like you have your work on Babel and then you have other maintainers that you work with and how do you figure out how to work together, um, what types of tasks each of you take on, um, how do those team dynamics work? Yeah, that, <laughs> that's really, that's really hard because obviously I don't want to tell people what to do and we want to encourage people to work on the things that they enjoy and want to, um, and I don't think anyone, well, yeah, anyone on our team is not like, we don't have anyone that's like, okay. You, know, you should be doing this and stuff like that. I think be, just because no one's really stepped up in that way, I, I kind of took on that role of trying to figure out like what the roadmap is and what we should be doing. But yeah, in the future, it's more like, okay, we, we should start having meetings, which we just did. Um, actually, I met, um, when I went to TZ during night, I met this guy, uh, Nathan Hammond, and he just offered to help us um, set up meetings. And he doesn't, he's not even involved in Babel at all, but he wanted to, after, I guess, hearing my talk and talking with him, he was able to set up the meetings and the notes and all this uh, more community stuff for Ember, uh, Ember community. And so he's, um, he said he's going to help us for, in the next month or so about getting us started to, to do that kind of thing. So I think with that, that will help us um, just communicate more. It's funny that for such a big project that we haven't really had meetings, that a lot of things just happened because someone was interested in it. And a lot of our communication right now is mostly over just Slack, but that doesn't really work when, you know, people aren't on Slack all day like me. So, yeah. <laughs> just sort of thinking more, um, more broadly about work on Babel, how do you and, and the rest of the team figure out like what types of work on the project needs paid support and where you need contributors? Because I've seen you advocate and experiment with both, right? Like needing more contributors on Babel, but also asking companies to support you financially. Um, how do you yeah. figure out like where to draw that line? Um, I don't know. I guess even just talking with my company, I, money makes everything complicated. So I think, I don't know, like setting up, you know, Patreon or Open Collective, all this stuff is really good but at the same time it i think uh, maggie um of moment she she brought it up really well that a lot of people that do open source or maintain open source they already have 
you know, either full-time job or part-time job. And it doesn't really help to get, you know, some money from funding because you're already getting paid. And it's not like you need money for open source to live or to, to do well. And the money that, that's why people have a hard time like spending the money from these crowdfunding things. Um, if you are like freelance or you're in between jobs or contracting, I think it, then you, I don't see any reason why you wouldn't do something like that if you need that money. But otherwise it's like kind of weird thinking about like, why would I want to spend the money? It's like, we can use it to buy like t-shirts and all these things for community, but that in the end isn't the blocker for open source, right? It's like, the problem is that we don't have enough people. So either we should get poor people to have more time or we add more people to get more involved. So I guess I would want to emphasize um, more companies getting involved with the projects and being more invested um, unless they're willing to, you know, actually sponsor enough money so someone can be paid full time. So it, it's weird. I guess, I don't know if it makes sense, but I almost see it kind of like a black and white where in between getting money doesn't seem to help the project much, in my opinion. So one thing that the Node.js project does that I think is probably the most effective thing that they've ever spent money on is uh, this thing called Code and Learn, where they send core committers to an event, uh, usually like alongside an event, and then, you know, a room full of people, they try to get them from zero to actually sending a pull request to core and getting into core. And if you look at the the basic expense, you know, it's like a couple thousand dollars to send each of these people um, to this event and they maybe work with 10 or 12 people to be effective. <laughs> and, and these are 10 or 12 people that may or may not stick around, but it's surprising how many actually have stuck around and how well that's worked. Um, but I think the piece that's missing and why I haven't seen a lot of smaller projects do this is that there's also infrastructure in just, you know, organizing and setting that up that yeah, is really yeah. hard to replicate, right? Like you've got, you know, $12,000 annually that you could totally set, you know, send the people, but it's, it's setting up that and organizing it. That's the real, that's the real blocker, right? Right. Um, that is totally something I would want to spend the money on. It's like, that's really investing in the community, right? Like finding people, um, investing in them. Um, there's not enough work yet being done to keep people. It's like we have a really good like welcoming and including people initially, but like how do you you know reach out again and again and again? Where you know maybe the second time or the third time, they you know people are busy. They're not um, thinking about the project as much as you. So I think totally spending money on that kind of thing uh, was what I had in mind. Um, the other thing I had in mind was. For us specifically, like Babel itself was like sending people to TC39, which is the same expense, like flying people out to some um, city and then the hotel. And that, yeah, it does cost a good amount of money. This episode is brought to you by our friends at GoCD. GoCD is an open source continuous delivery server built by ThoughtWorks 
GoCD provides continuous delivery out of the box with its built-in pipelines, advanced traceability, and value stream visualization. With GoCD, you can easily model, orchestrate, and visualize complex workflows from end to end. It supports modern infrastructure with elastic on-demand agents and cloud deployments, and their plugin ecosystem ensures GoCD will work well in your unique environment. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.org slash changelog. It's free to use and has professional support for enterprise add-ons available from ThoughtWorks. Once again, gocd.org slash changelog. You mentioned that you went to, to TC39. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about sort of what the motivation for you going was and for, for Babel sending people in general? Uh, I think for me, when I was going, I was like, yeah, I was wondering why do I want to go? And I felt like for me, it's more, it's not really about what you know I would get out of it, but like just telling people there that I, I think most people knew that it existed, but like, you know, what was the project about, who works on it, that, you know, most of the people are volunteer, and, like, how we can help influence TC39. And, I don't know, it was a very, I would say, lucky opportunity, again, because this reading happened to be in New York, so I didn't have to figure out, like, travel plans. Um, and it was at Google, which is also on 4, uh, 15th, I think. Um, so I just walked over there. And, uh, and then... You know, my company was, you know, they let me go for the, those three days uh, last week. And th also they had, they have like an agenda that tells you like what they're going to talk about. And this meeting, they had this thing called the vision talks. And it was about, they invited a few people to talk about, you know, the future of JavaScript and stuff like that. And I just asked um, Dan, uh, one of the TC39 members, if I could, you know, give a talk. And he's like, oh, it's perfect. You could do a vision talk. So I did like a short talk in like a day and then I was able to present on Wednesday, which was really good opportunity because I felt like if I just went there, um, I don't know if it would really mean that much because there's not that much time to talk with people and people are busy working on, you know, different proposals and stuff like that. Um, I think just being able to put our name out there to get people to think about that was important to me. I kind of felt like, uh, what's it called, no uh, taxation without representation, where <laughs> we have our users who are like, oh, why, are, why isn't this syntax in Babel, or why is it slow, or, you know, stuff like that. And then we have the implementers who are like, oh, why didn't you implement this proposal either? So I, was, I just felt like people were complaining about the project, but not really letting us talk or, or communicate on what the state of the project is and all that stuff. So I think it was really helpful in that sense. I'm going to jump in real quick as the non-JavaScripty person here. Can you just briefly explain for listeners what TC39 is and why it's important? Yeah. Um, so TC39 is a technical committee uh, 39, and it's part of ECMA, which is an organization that does standards. Um, and so there's the JavaScript standard. Um, so ECMAScript is JavaScript. and it's basically a group of um, individuals that represent certain companies that are invested in the language and want to improve it and write the actual specification of how it should be implemented. 
Um, and so these companies are like Facebook and Google, Netflix, a bunch of big companies that you know uh, want to move the, the language forward. Um, and I think they meet uh, every two months um, at one of those companies uh, for three days. And they talk about different proposals on uh, what syntax should be added or different um, changes that need to be made. Yeah, it's been going on for a really long time. Actually, uh, I think it's this year, JavaScript will be 20 years old, which is pretty crazy. Mm. Um, and I guess another thing is that right now, the process is pretty different from what it was before um, ES6 or JavaScript, the sixth version of JavaScript, because uh, there was a single editor and he did all the changes in a Word document and you had to like submit like I think like patches or emails to figure out how to change things but right now the spec is on github which is pretty crazy um, and now there's a whole staging process about like how you move a proposal forward in the language so everything is a lot more streamlined but I think uh, they could do a lot better job of like um, incorporating more of the community as well since it used to be just like you know 10 people or something yeah, I, I well, like one thing to note about it is that it's a member organization and there are dues that are paid, right? So it, it really is heavily focused on sort of larger companies that can understand enough that they have a strategic investment to send people. And then sending people is also not cheap. I mean, they do like right. I think like five meetings a year or something. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. So um, it's really easy, you know, to justify being there if you write a VM, right? Like, right. Um, and it's really easy to justify it if you're, you know, Facebook or Airbnb or, or these mm -hmm. companies. But as, as they've sort of expanded, right, like they've or as really JavaScript has expanded, um, a big part of what they're really building for is for Babel, and they're and they're building for Node.js, and they they know that they're building for these systems before they actually get representatives in. Um, but their view of what these tools are and how they get built out and how easy or hard it is to get features in is wildly different from anybody with actual experience in those tools. <laughs> and for the longest time, it's been very hard to get people from these tools into those meetings um, because it's, it's expensive. Right. So this, this is like a great use of, of, you know, funds that you raise and things like that because you can actually send community people to this kind of stuff. Yeah, I think um, I would categorize the people that at TC39 into like the developers, so more like the people that write JavaScript, and then like you said, implementers, the people that implement JavaScript in the browsers and Node or so like Chrome and Firefox. Um, so they they're writing like the C++ code that you know is in the browser, and then the third um, category I'd say are the the people that are more focused on the language itself and writing. They're very experienced in like programming languages in general, but they might not write JavaScript. Um, I think that it's weird. Babel, I think fits. Like I would consider myself more the developer, but then technically, I'm the project still implements the the spec in some sense. So we're kind of like both roles. Uh, I think we're really good. Just like other people that we would invite from the community, we can represent um, our users better than uh, the folks that don't actually write JavaScript. So stuff like this, I mean, it sounds like you're moving into more of a public role, being able to represent Bablet at places like this. What does that feel like? I mean, does it feel like you're growing to a different set of responsibilities as a maintainer? Yeah, yeah, actually, definitely feeling like that. Um, I've never really been comfortable with uh, 
like public speaking and all that stuff. But I think, um, yeah, just getting these opportunities helps me grow in that way. And it's another level of, I guess, imposter syndrome where you're like, oh, wow, I'm like going to the meeting where people make JavaScript. I never would have thought that would have happened. <laughs> uh, but yeah, now, you know, we're giving presentation there and people are genuinely interested about it. Um, I know I've talked to a few implementers and they just, you know, they just didn't really understand how Babel works or how it was used in the community. And I'm hoping that um, at least if I'm not able to go, you know, later that that kind of changes how people think about um, how it's used for those implementers. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the Guy Fieri incident. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that, I feel like that's a pretty long story. Um, let's see. So uh, Jordan uh, Scales, he wrote a, I guess, a blog post on Medium, like kind of like a satire. And I, I don't even remember when this was, but I guess this is when everyone was complaining about JavaScript fatigue and how um, the, all of our node modules were too big. And I guess a big part of that was through Babel. Um, and part of the, he, he was big, kind of making fun of a lot of projects and one of the projects was Babel. And he basically said that there was a picture of Guy Fieri in the source code and that there's nothing you could do about it. And it was funny because a lot of people like actually took the article very seriously, even though he worked, I think he worked pretty, like, I guess there's a fine line between it being like <laughs> where people think it's really real or it's just a joke, but it, it was pretty funny. And then what happened was uh, James Kyle, who was, uh, was contributing to Val, he, um, he made a pull request to Val to actually uh, Guy Fieri in, in the code base. Um, Initially, it was just a URL, um, just like a string. Uh, but then uh, I think someone suggested that it should be the ASCII version of it. Um, and so I think Sebastian merged that. And then, yeah, people made a big deal about it. <laughs> yeah, we never ended up shipping it because I, I just, I told uh, Jordan to revert the PR, but I don't know. I, I, even if it was in the source code, it, it wouldn't have been that big a deal, but it seemed like a lot of people felt like uh, we were being uh, unprofessional. <laughs> <laughs> I think that speaks to something that I find really fun about about Babel from the outside um, is you seem to have a pretty strong brand and it's like this very playful brand. Mm -hmm. um, I remember when you had like you created an issue label that was like the shruggy because it was like, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> yeah. um, and you had like the matching Babel sweaters and stuff and it just feels mm -hmm. like I mean, again, just totally from the outside, like everyone's having a lot of fun. And I think that like, I don't know, like how intentionally do you think about creating that kind of brand? Because it seems to be a big factor in why people like Babel so much as a community. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think of myself as like a funny person or anything, but uh, <laughs> uh, I think that I think it's important in the sense that that makes it more approachable. You know, it's not... Like it is being used everywhere and it's, you know, quote, serious project, but at the same time, like, you know, open source doesn't need to be just about, you know, helping your company make money, but like, it's also a fun experience. And a lot of people are experienced with open sources through like their fun little side projects. And it's weird because in some sense, I almost feel that because we um, joke a lot and do that kind of thing that maybe certain people are turned off 
or even companies are like, oh, they're not taking it seriously, so we don't want to contribute, <laughs> which is kind of weird, but sometimes I kind of get that feeling. But yeah, I mean, it's really fun to take things like farther than that, right? Where, you know, we have the little, that code base uh, with the picture in it, but then it's like, oh, uh, Mariko, um, she made that uh, website, it's called Sweaterify, and it takes a picture and turns it into the, I guess, a sewn version of it. And then it's like, oh, let's make a t-shirt. And then like, we can like give it away to people. So um, that kind of just builds on itself. And I think people can be really drawn to that. Um, and even in some sense that, that can like lead to a lot more contributions than something where they don't really understand like how the code base works. Um, I haven't really thought about being that intentional about it because that might like <laughs> take away from the, um, realness of it but yeah yeah i mean that that's how i i've been thinking of is it makes the whole thing really approachable i mean even your own personal like air quotes brand um but just i mean the fact that you always make a point to talk about how you didn't really know what you were doing when you started and you know it's fine you'll just kind of figure it out and i think all that stuff just makes the whole project feel really approachable so from the outside, Babel looks really successful. There's like a lot of people using it. There's a lot of people excited about it. It seems to have this very fun Guy Fieri oriented community. Um, is it doing fine kind of internally? Um, because we, we often see that users don't necessarily track with sustainability and in fact can can put a lot of burden on the people that are trying to sustain a project. So what is your view right now of, of how well it's doing um, in terms of that sustainability and handling this massive user base? Um, yeah, I, yeah, I guess I brought this question up in my talk, like, what is it, what does a healthy project mean? And like, what does it mean to be sustainable? I guess there's a lot of measures in terms of like, statistics you could probably get from GitHub about like how many issues are open and closed and pull requests and releases and stuff. But then I guess in my own biased personal view, just because that's me, uh, sustainability in the end mostly means like, how many people are working on it and do we feel good about what's going on? So it's more of like a mm -hmm. psychological, just am I feeling well, like day to day that, that I can manage it or we can manage it as a team. Um, and I guess right now I feel, I feel pretty good. <laughs> and, you know, maybe it's a combination of a lot of things, including that, that the pressures that I was feeling before aren't as much of an issue to me anymore. Um, yeah. <laughs> is it? Be, yeah. It's, I mean, I, I'm wondering, like, do you feel good about just because you sort of care less, not that you care less, but you feel less um, like emotionally wrapped up in it? Is it like your own mentality that's shifted a little bit? Yeah, I think definitely it, that was a big part of it. Um, it's not. Yeah, it's not like I don't care about the project because I feel like in some sense, maybe I'd spend the same amount of time or even more time than before. But Maybe I have a better sense of what the vision of the project is or what things are priority or what things we should be working on. Um, I think one problem I really had was that I would wait for like notifications or, you know, GitHub issues or someone on Twitter about Bao and then I would have to respond to it. And every time you do that, you're just distracting yourself from um, the work that you could be doing. And I pay too much attention to that. Um, and if it affects your, you know, your mental state or whatever, then yeah, it, it shouldn't be that way. Um, what happened was I felt like 
the project wasn't moving in any direction. It was just kind of there and we were just maintaining it. And that's why, you know, we all tend to work on things that we're used to or we're good at. And, you know, I would fix easy bugs or like work on the documentation, uh, things like that. But in the end, that doesn't, it makes you feel good for like that moment in time. But you know, in the back of your mind, like, oh, the project doesn't actually move forward, like, because we're not focusing on like the features that people need or what we think the direction of the project is. And until we do that, it will always feel like an overwhelming burden uh, as a maintainer. Like ballpark numbers, you know, how many people contribute today compared to, you know, when you took over as maintainer? I don't know. Yeah, I think that's another problem. It's just we don't really have a good idea what that means in terms of like, is it like per day or per week or per month? And I feel like when I started, when Sebastian was working on it, it was literally just him. And you can see this because if you go to our you know, contribution graph, you'll see that Sebastian has like, I think like 5,000 commits or something. Um, and then the rest of us have a lot less, like way less. And this is because it was really, I, I, I don't know why, but like, yeah, people weren't contributing. And so he would fix a lot of stuff on his own where there wouldn't even be a pull request. He kind of just like makes a commit and it was there um, because he, he, he knew everything. And so he was able to fix things in like, you know, like two minutes after there was a bug, which is like amazing. Um, and then for us, it would take a lot longer and we would make that pull request. So, yeah, I kind of felt like, and he, it wasn't like, it wasn't, it was a inapproachable or he wasn't trying to get people to contribute. Uh, there's plenty of issues of him talking about like where you can contribute and all that stuff. So I don't think it was anything particularly he did wrong in that sense. Uh, and then now I think technically on our team, we have like, a, you know, like a dozen or so people or more than that, that are, that have like collaborator access. Um, but, you know, everyone has different goals and times um, that they're able to work on the project so so was it just like a matter of time then you're saying like you know there's nothing really different i guess about he was encouraging contributions and stuff but now you just seem to have more um like the risk has been diversified a little bit more did some did you do something different or is it just right um i i'm definitely focusing on it more and we kind of touched on this earlier, and I think this is a result of me not being the creator. Um, so it wasn't like he wasn't trying. It's just more like the perspective you have as the creator of the project is different from you coming from the outside. That I think inherently I'm going to focus more on creating that community just because I'm able to think in the same way um, as other people, more so than if you are the creator, I think. And in the end, like... Maybe it's just because a lot of it is I don't really want to do a lot of the technical work anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> I would very be willing to defer that to other people. And while he was very comfortable with, you know, fixing those bugs, uh, learning the spec, um, that kind of thing. So maybe there's that too. It seems like things are, are much more diversified now, but you're you're definitely still filling out a role there. Um, do you think that, you know, if you step down tomorrow, that there's enough people there that kind of care about it to to take on the responsibilities that, that you're doing? Would would the project be all right? Um there's yeah, I don't think there's enough people working on it like on a day to day, but maybe that's just because my expectation for how it should work is, you know, and moving too fast than expected. Um 
you know, it's like, oh, I wanted to, like, before I was, like, releasing, like, every week, and I kind of felt like that was unnecessary, and now it's like, oh, that's, like, I want more people to get involved. I don't definitely don't want to be, like, the, um, what's, uh, what's it called, the benevolent dictator for life or anything like that. Yeah, I think we're at a place where we still need to figure that out. Right now, Logan, uh, who's also um, one of the main maintainers, he he's kind of just taking a break from work. So um, even him, it's like, well, he gets to choose whether he wants to work on Bell or not. And other people, you know, don't get to work on at work either. So there's way more work that could be done. And encouraging contributions is really awesome. And even going to the TC39 was great because we... We actually were able to get a pull request for a lot of the new proposals that were added last week, uh, like uh, yesterday. Um, that's only a week later, and that was just through telling people about it. But but in the end, the hard part about maintaining it isn't making the code, but like reviewing the code. So um, there's even more work that needs to be done there. I think that's a good place to close out. Thanks for coming on and talking to us, Henry. Thanks. This is awesome. Yeah, this has been great. Thanks, man. All right. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Request for Commits. If you enjoyed the show, do us a favor. Share it with a friend. Rate us an Apple podcast. Tell everyone you know. And thank you to our sponsors, Linode and GoCD. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. Also, thanks to Rollbar for our air monitoring. Head to Rollbar.com to learn more. And we host everything we do on Linode cloud servers at the linode.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support this show. Request for Commits is hosted by Nadia Ekbal and Michael Rogers. It's edited by Jonathan Youngblood, mastered by me, Adam Stachowiak, and the music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more shows just like this at changelog.com or by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.